for the first time, we're going to have patients who have more information than their clinicians. Mostly, when a patient gets a chronic condition, they usually learn about it. They educate themselves and they get more of where they talk with their physician. And there's also usually a care team that takes care of chronic patients. It's only one physician can be specialist, etc. Cures Act at a super high level is fundamentally to try and change how can we create regulations that move us from volume to value. Hello and welcome to Shine, a podcast by Star. My name is Tom, your host, and today we are talking about the unexpected effects, the second order effects of the 21st century's Cures Act. And to illuminate this topic, we are joined by Star's very own Jeff Parker, the Technology Director in Health and Wellness in Star. Jeff is joined by Drew Hanna, who's the Director of Business Development in the US at Smile CDR, and Yannick Gaudet, who is the President of KLYG Solutions and also a Healthcare Information Technology Consultant. And in this topic, as I mentioned, yes, the 21st Century Cures Act has been released and is being released into the world, but I don't think that everybody is aware of the impact of these regulations. And so what we did in this episode is really dig into the second order effects of this big massive change on the different stakeholders. So we talk obviously about the patients, clinicians, IT administrators, developers, insurers, and healthcare businesses. So let's jump right into that discussion. The first voice you'll hear will be that of Yannick. Hi, uh, everybody. My name is Yannick Godet. I'm a uh, healthcare IT specialist in system integration and interoperability. I'm also a co-founder at uh, SecMed, which is a platform for clinical documentation. I've basically been doing uh, HL7 integration of uh, healthcare system for uh, over 25 years now. Hi, my name is Drew Hanna. I'm the Director of Business Development for Smile CDR. Uh, Smile is a software vendor who basically maintains the most used fire platform in the world, and that's Happy Fire, downloaded about 100,000 times a month. And then we sell a commercial enterprise class version called Smile CDR. Hi, everyone. My name is Jeff Parker. I'm the technology director for STARS Health and Wellness team. And my background is in software development, working on multiple patient portals, healthcare applications, medical devices, and interoperability projects. Amazing. Thank you so much for the introductions. Now, we're going to start broad. I want to understand, I want to get everybody that's listening on the same page in terms of what the 21st Century Cures Act actually is. And I'm going to go to Jeff first to help us out with that, please. So the 21st Century Cures Act is actually a piece of US legislation. And it's primarily around accelerating medical product, drugs, devices, innovation, and streamlining the process of bringing them to market. But within there is a little bit of a, a focus on improving patient access to data. So how do we get uh, patients to have access to the medical records from providers? Uh, how do we get it from payers um, so that they can gather that information and share it? And that's what I think is particularly topical at the moment. And Drew, why, do, why is this such a big deal? In so many ways, healthcare data has been siloed like other data at times. 
And what that leads to is often incomplete information and the outcomes for healthcare when you don't see a complete record. I'll give one quick example, and that is uh, recently I was, my father-in-law had a number of health issues come up because he split a lot of his health care between the VA, because he's a vet, and a particular provider. Each of them fundamentally only had about half of the data. And actually an example that I've heard before, or the thing that made it really clear to me is that right now we have people in the US going from, with chronic conditions, going from clinic to clinic with stacks of paper. Yeah, that's kind of the crux of the problem. Like once you start dealing with people who have chronic health conditions, you know, eventually they visit multiple different providers across their lifetime. And it might span 10, 20, 30 or more years. And each time they collect a little piece of information. And for a long time, we haven't had digital records or certainly not digital records that patients could access. So historically, people have been able to get these records as a printout or something like that from their healthcare provider. And so over time, again, people with chronic conditions accumulate all of this information from individual uh, providers that they visit. And they kind of carry it around in this big folio of like, okay, here's my problem. I'm still searching for somebody who can provide an answer to me for what's going on in my life. And here's all the information. But you know, when you've got hundreds of pages of information and scans and everything else like that, just giving that to a physician doesn't necessarily make it easier for them. Now they're trying to work out, okay, I've got to get through all of this information. I've got to try and understand it. And how do I do that? And to add with that, and, and chronic patients are obviously a big target for such legislation because mostly when a patient gets a chronic condition, they usually learn about it. They educate themselves and they get more of where they talk with their physician and and there's also usually a care team that takes care of chronic patients. It's only one physician to be specialist, et cetera. Those patients sometimes will not get access to a piece of data, maybe in time. A diabetic patient that gets his blood work done every three months may not actually see his A1C result until later, until after a visit with his doctor a year later, maybe. But if the patient has access to that data immediately with an, an app that makes sense, you could actually see a, a trend, for example, or realize that, you know, in the summer is blood sugar is higher than in the winter. And right after Christmas, most diabetic patients have a higher number because we eat more. So there's also that point where there'll be a, a good gain for good patients that get access to data faster uh, and then can actually have an interaction with a physician and say, hey, that last number, by the way, on my blood work, don't worry about it. It was right after a big weekend, where if the doctor just sees bad blood uh, result, they may just hit the panic button. But if the patient's able to communicate and there's an interaction and there's a system or systems, uh, the exchange of data uh, in a timely fashion, that'll be a massive gain for everybody, the care team and the patient. So what I'm actually hearing is that there, obviously, there's a benefit from the EV exchange of health data between providers, but there's two additional benefits. One, I think, is standardization of data. If someone's carrying their stack of paper, maybe the scans are in different formats and the, the new doctor might not understand. And then second, Yannick, as you mentioned, is speed. 
in that the, we can get the data to the patient faster. Am I accurate in that these two like added benefits? Absolutely. I'll throw in to go back to your original question. You know, the Cures Act at a super high level is, is fundamentally to try and change the U.S. health system, one, to lower costs and improve outcomes by moving from that volume-based care model that you could say is underlies our free market to how can we create regulations that in, move us from volume to value and improve outcomes. And certainly some of the focus we're talking about here is on the interoperability mandates, which are all about how can we exchange data better? And certainly part of that is the mandates putting a lot more onus on the payers, a la US health insurance, because they feel like, gee, here we can create that better historical record instead of individual vertical encounter slices at different providers by putting the onus on the payers to try and collect and create this better historical longitudinal record and they're mandating fire to do it. Yeah. And I think fire there is, is actually one of the really important evolutions of this process. I mean, if we look back at some of the other efforts and initiatives that have been on in the past to, to try and address and, and give people access to their data. In the US in particular, there was Blue Button, which is still going. But Blue Button, if you go back to some of the original announcements, and I think Obama said it sort of when he originally announced the, the program, uh, he said, look, here's a way for you to go and download and print your historical record. You know, that, that's the sort of original genesis of it. It's like, oh yeah, we're giving you access but the format of it's not defined, the structure of it's not defined, we can get it, oh yeah, and then you print it, and then you end up back with this big folio of, of data. Uh, and that was, you know, around 2010. We've moved a long way since then. We've got more standard with our interfaces and our definitions and our structure. Um, and now we're getting to that point where not only are we trying to get access to that data, but we're trying to maintain it in a way that we can actually support it and provide it back to clinicians in a meaningful way. And I would say, adding to that, a stack of paper is pretty much out of date after it's been printed, right? So you receive a stack of paper, you receive a, a chart from a, an EHR, you print it. If there's a lab result or a note from a physician that was added to your chart two seconds later, it's not on your paper. So there's also that aspect that, you know, printing data or receiving your chart from your physician on a piece of paper is pretty much out of date. And corrections and things like that too. Like if you notice that there's something wrong in that chart and you go back to the hospital, well, you've got to hope that you get a, an updated printed version which has that corrected in it. So it's, it's very clear that this is like a fundamental shift which seems so logical. It also seems to me though that there, there may be one stakeholder who may be, and maybe I'm simplifying this, but against the Cures Act, and that would be the healthcare providers, the healthcare businesses that make money from providing healthcare. And I'm not saying they act like this, but maybe it is in their interest to not give data so easily so that they can like maintain more of a monopoly on their patients. So how are, my question is, how are the healthcare providers reacting or adapting to this? There's actually two aspects. There's, like you said, from a, maybe the provider himself it's not as bad as the organization, 
Like an organization can lose a patient if the patient has his data or can just, you know, request a second opinion. Well, if you have access to your chart, you can get a second opinion from another organization and then, you know, they can steal patient. Unfortunately, you know, healthcare in the US, it's it's a business, which has some good stuff, but one of them is not that good, which is, you know, stealing patient from other organization. From a physician point of view, Kim's had a presentation a couple of months ago where they did a study about physician and uh, data provided by the patient. And IoT, for example, you know, like wearable, pretty much, you know, I don't want to say all patients, but there's a lot of people now that wear watches that checks, you know, your your blood pressure, your your heart rate, your body temperature, et cetera, et cetera, which is fantastic. Most glucometer that you uh, acquire now for diabetic patients are actually Bluetooth and can send data to your phone and then to your chart. That is fantastic. But that study showed that physicians are actually a bit worried about that data because it wasn't contributed or added by a professional. It was actually added by the patient. So, you know, is the patient always taking his blood when he knows it's right? Is the watch actually calibrated properly? So, you know, good news, FHIR has a way to tell where the data is coming from. So that means that the doctor can actually either disregard or not uh, the piece of data that it's receiving. So like I said, there's a, there's a bit of a worriness from physician and organization with such legislation because it's like, one, I can lose my patient because my patient has access to his data, can go somewhere else. And also, what kind of data is my patient providing to me? I'll add a slightly different twist uh, as far as on the competitive nature of things. One of the major pieces of legislation that's been recently, you could say, tacked onto the, the Cures Act is what was passed in December, the No Surprises Act. And the name comes from the fact that you should not get that you know $10,000 bill for some in-network procedure you had. And all of a sudden they're going, oh, I'm sorry may well be the same hospital you went to last time, but that procedure is out of network. Here's your $10,000 bill. Now have your heart attack. But, but while no surprises is out to prevent that surprise billing, what it really does, though, is open up a whole can for everybody to see everybody else's prices across provider networks and across what the payers pay. And believe me, there's pushback on that. But all that said, it doesn't look like that pushback will be successful. And I think that's one of the areas where providing this access, providing the ability for people to see what their data is, start seeing the prices, the transparency. I think that's going to be a great opportunity for a lot of the new applications that are out there in the marketplace that can start to capitalize on this and start to present this information to consumers so that they're starting to look at their data and, oh, here's an app that's trying to tell you, oh, you know what? If you go to this network or this network, these are the different prices that you're going to start to see. That's going to be a huge win for the for the patients. So let's shift from the healthcare providers, the businesses over to the patient. What are the second order effects that the patient is going to experience? And let's kick off, Jeff, with the, I guess, exciting opportunities for developers to provide consumer applications that are built on top of this data. And what, what are you seeing there? And what is exciting for the patient? So I think, yeah, it's really that sense that for the first time, we're going to have patients who have more information than their clinicians. 
because we're going to have patients who've collected and aggregated all of their information from the different encounters, the different providers that they've spoken to over time. And they're going to have this sort of singular view of their record. And then developers can start to look at that data and start to work out, okay, based on this information, we can start to provide guidance. We can start to provide recommendations about, you know, how do we save money? How do we reduce costs? How do we get better efficiency? And maybe it's not necessarily just one or the other. It might be, oh, you'll be able to go and see a provider in this network in this time frame. So we might be able to shorten the, the duration that people are waiting to get access to care. All of that data is going to come from that singular view or that that record. And as a consumer, we're going to start to look at and find the applications that are going to be meaningful and relevant to us. So if I'm on a low income and I'm looking to see how do I save more money with my healthcare costs, then those applications that are focused on keeping my costs down are going to be really, really interesting and important to me. And I'm going to start picking those up. I can also see a, an openness to, uh, more, I don't want to call them startups, but companies or, or researcher that has never thought about going a certain way and now be able to say, for a specific chronic disease, I can actually provide an app for those patients that gathers information from everywhere. And as part of my offering is, by the way, I will denormalize your data and start to do, I don't want to call it artificial intelligence, but data mining and be able to actually help not only a patient, but a group of patients about you know, most patients that have that condition with that kind of blood result, with that kind of lifestyle, that medication seems to be working better or not. Or, you know, that little change in that lifestyle can actually change your blood result here. So I can see startup or new company emerging and say, hey, there's a there's a way to gather a lot of data about a specific condition and actually thrive with that data and even help research in general and then help patients and patient care with that, which at some point should lower the cost. How about actually having or giving the ability for the patient to monetize their data? Yeah, I think that's a, a really fascinating concept. At the moment, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of value in that data that Yannick was just talking about. That there's that sense of here's all of this information and it's all tightly controlled and, and kept within privacy frameworks and everything else that institutions have. And sometimes there's some some sharing of that data and monetization of that data into research circles. Now we're getting to that point where individual consumers may be able to start getting the value. Once they're getting the data, the value of the data that they've collected, they can start looking at ways where they can go and provide that to, to different agencies that can use it. So clinical trials where people are looking for uh, patients with specific conditions, being able to support that, being able to identify that you might be eligible for a particular trial. So new treatment, new medication, um, a lot of these things are going to be something that comes available to them. And at the moment, there are industries where people spend large amounts of money trying to find people uh, and recruit them into these trials. On that topic of the monetization of the patient data, do we run the risk of all that information being sucked, let's just say, into social media platforms that could then, I don't want to say nefariously, but advertisers could then use that data to target people based on their health history. A, do we think that's going to happen? And then B, do we think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I think that's inevitable. That's where big data, you know, is. That's why big data, I don't want to say that's why big data exists, but a big chunk of big data is about 
you know, targeting specific market, targeting specific people. Now, if you have a targeted app for targeted disease, well, there's, there's probably some money behind, some marketing behind, some pharma behind that wants that data to be able to also, you know, target the audience. If the app is kind of sponsored by a pharma, they can, you know, try to push their medication to a patient. So I don't think that the question is if, the question is more when, I think, for something like that. And actually, black market, data being stolen, same thing, same rule applied there too, I think, where it's not about if patient data will end up on the black market, it already does right now. So it's more about when will that law rule impact data badly that it ends up on the black market. We just had, uh, for July 1st, a fair amount of the payers in the US have implemented the patient access API mandate, which says that payers need to allow third-party app access to data when, when the member has requested that to happen. And indeed, there's a lot of good players, and some of them have gotten certified, be it by Karen Blue Button, et cetera, to, hey, they're protecting your privacy. But certainly, if the internet's shown us anything, a lot of time we don't do the things we should do to protect our data. And certainly, there are apps already out there that I've seen that's like, when you look at them, you go, okay, yep, I get the this app will deliver this to my phone. But if I look a little deeper, oh, it's also going to this server off in XYZ. I think I'll choose not to use that app. But again, our history of people really protecting their privacy is, is certainly a mixed bag. And yeah, there's a fear that the patient access API will end up creating a fair amount of personal health records ending up elsewhere on the dark web, et cetera. Yeah, I think that element of what's the monetary model behind the apps and things that we're using? How, how are they going to be using this data? What are they going to be sharing it with? Sort of what protections and things do they have in place? I think that's going to be one of the big challenges for consumers who are looking at this. And, you know, as we've seen, people will trade off that privacy for the convenience and value in their applications. Like We look back to, to when mobile applications came out in the marketplace sort of 10 odd years ago. And a lot of people were concerned about the uh, location-based tracking and, and location information that they had in their, their applications and people would turn it off. But then over time, we started to see the value behind it and people started looking at it and say, oh, well, you know, I can get this Uber delivered straight to my feet uh, wherever I am at any point in time. And so, you know, slowly people have been turning it on for the convenience of it. And, you know, I think there's a huge risk there that, sort of people start just looking at, well, what's the convenience to me without sort of understanding what's happening in the back end of it. So we've covered the healthcare providers and businesses. We've covered the patients. A, another stakeholder that I would like to discuss quickly is the IT administrator, the person within the healthcare provider who's responsible for making all this happen. And Drew, I think you have some insight into this. There's some deadlines that have either passed or that are coming up that are going to be somewhat challenging for these administrators to adhere to. So, so far, as far as the interoperability mandates, you could say the good news for the health insurance companies is that to meet July, they really just had to provide data they already had. But we have some mandates that are at the moment set for January 1st of next year. One of them is called the payer-to-payer data exchange. 
the other, and most people are underestimating this because they they are looking at what was the old price transparency rule, is there is under that No Surprises Act, a price transparency mandate for January 1 that has a variety of significant data exchanges going on between providers to payers to members with tight timeframes. And then I'm going to say following in January 1 of 2023 is the automation of prior authorization. All of these require an unprecedented level of data exchange between these parties and will require some kind of data exchange hub to happen in every healthcare plan. And thus, there will be somebody in that admin role looking at, here comes this data. Did it land where it's supposed to? Now, you know, check it to go on to the next part of the workflow. And if my my career taught me anything is anytime two healthcare system needs to exchange data, there's usually a massive project that takes a very, very, very long time to negotiate and implement. So if you're looking at January 1st, 2022, if you're not already starting to do it, you'll probably be uh, freaking out in November, December. Just saying. And what's interesting right now, from what I gather, and part of it from a lot of sources, I'll just say here, a little plug, Smile has been really good at getting our payers over the deadline. But from what I'm hearing, it's maybe a third of the health insurance companies met the July 1st mandate. And I know I'm out talking to a bunch of these payers. And a lot of them, when I bring up payer to payer, let alone price transparency, they it's not even really quite on the radar properly yet. So we'll see what happens on January 1st. Yeah. That's really interesting to consider. I mean, not necessarily a surprise either, but I mean, there's some fairly significant penalties up for, for providers who aren't able to deal with this. I mean, you know, we're talking about a million dollars per violation of some of these things. So, you know, the penalties are significant to, to go and get these pieces in place. I don't think there is, there aren't many health insurance companies out there who I think are comprehending just how huge uh, their data exchange uh, burden will be coming up and coming up rapidly. Awesome. Okay. And so I think it's clear that the Cures Act is like a significant piece of work and it's going to have far reaching second order effects. When we look back, let's say we go to five years into the future, we're looking back now. What do we think are going to be the more longer term impacts on the world of healthcare? I think there's probably two things that I can see is we're going to get to a transition from institutions holding out healthcare record. And we're going to move towards an environment where patients are in control of and managing their patient record. And I think that in itself has a couple of fundamental shifts for the way things are. Physicians, clinicians, they're taking their notes in the EMR and they're really kind of focused more towards themselves. It's like, okay, I need to be able to refer back to this for the next time I come and see this patient. We're going to get to a system where all of that information is kind of coming back to the patient and then the patient's trying to understand it. They're trying to make sense of it. And then on top of that, as the owner and the controller of that record, they're going to start to invest into what are some of these other solutions that can start to provide me guidance and advice about my care. So we're going to see more and more applications, whether it's AI or or machine learning or, or just decision tree guidance 
around best practices within the industry that are going to be based on applications, providing some insights some input into my record. And I think the other piece is how are clinicians going to embrace and leverage this new source of information? So no longer is it going to be the case where I'm going to my physician sort of five years from now and going in and say, okay, well, you've got all the information. You tell me what's going on. It's going to be an exercise. Well, here's the information. And I want to share that view and that history and that record so that you can do that analysis and then provide the feedback and the insight from it. And that's going to be a different model where no longer they just have that information at their fingertips. It's going to be me providing it. So how do they ingest that? How do they process it efficiently and quickly in a way that they can actually identify, oh, here are the really relevant factors that are coming out of it that they need to be able to respond to. That I think there's also, we have to think about the adoption rate of technology like that or or mandate of what that means. And I think if we go, you know, like three, five, seven, 10, 15 years in the future, I think that we'll have initially a very low adoption rate. And uh, for example, the aging population will not download an app. They do not have smartphone, but you know what? Their children do. And the children now have to take care of those pa- of those parents. So they may not even adopt it for themselves, but they may actually want to adopt it for their parents so they can take better care of their parent or their father-in-law for, for some of us. But, you know, like, and that could see that in, in two years, three years. But now when you go, you know, five, seven, ten, I think that's going to almost be the norm. And again, for chronic patient, that will almost be normal. And maybe physician would also even say, okay, you've just been diagnosed with a chronic disease. Here's an app that's fantastic for managing your health, managing your chart, making sure that all your care team or your care provider are actually in sync. I think that the the patient that goes see his doctor every five years because his, his wife is nagging him to do so, and he doesn't have any health problem, probably won't adopt such system and he won't care about such system. But as soon as that patient's gonna have an actual problem that requires him to go from hospital to hospital to get referred to specialist and then to lab and, and, and imaging and back to a specialist, that's when that those patients, not in three years, but in five to seven years, I think that's when a massive ramp up of patient will start to get on board. I think that in 10 to 15, that'll just be the norm. Yeah, and earlier you had mentioned wearable devices and things are are shifting so rapidly where where more of these apps or wearable devices, et cetera, will be feeding a huge amount of data. And that not just is being taken in uh, to whatever your data store is, but indeed, you know, the reference earlier on business intelligence, et cetera, will be looked at by systems that are going to be calculating, oh my goodness, look at that reading. Here's an actionable alert back. Um, and this is where, and, and actually to the earlier payer question, we are going to be seeing a near-time send of data from providers into their payers and with value measures like HEDIS being used, or there's a technology, clinical quality language, CQL, where they're going to take these value measures to automatically calculate it, but also automatically create those actionable alerts that are going to say, hey, wait a sec, you need to 
you know, come back to the provider and tell them, hey, you need to do something for this person now, et cetera. Anyway. I completely agree. I think that sort of perspective of it's, it's the people with chronic conditions that are going to have to deal with this first. And they're the people who will, they're the ones that are currently managing that big folio of, of data that they're carrying around with them. They'll be the ones adopting it. But then as we start to see that sort of new patient who has otherwise been healthy up until now, and then they start to get something and they start to get sick. That's where we're going to see that sort of historical data where it's like, yeah, I've worn a Fitbit for years, but I didn't do anything with the data because it wasn't relevant to me then. All of a sudden, oh, now we've got a condition. Now we've got this whole new trove of, of data going back 10 years to go and look at for this patient to say, you know what? We could actually see this five or six years ago if we start to look at the data. And that's where we're going to start to see even more value from the patients as they transition from being sort of well into to different conditions. And finally, how do we think that the open access to healthcare data is ultimately going to make the world a better place? I think that we've all, there's everything that we've talked about a little bit is getting empowering the patient. Uh, there's one thing that's happening now more and more is the concept of having, you know, a patient partner, right? Which is, you know, back in the days and, and even not that far back, the patient was just a patient and there was a care team taking care of the patient. Now with that paradigm shift, even without that legislation, the patients are starting to be more conscious of what's going on and are actually actively taking care of, of their treatment. Instead of just being a bystander that receives treatment, they're actually part of the care team almost and, and helping the care team to take better care of themselves, which is with the legislation like that, we, we're actually helping the patient even more to be part of the care team because now he's actually the holder of the data almost where he can actually share data with the care team that the care team wouldn't have access to before or didn't even know maybe that there's that data that existed. So to me, again, maybe not in a year or two, but in three to five years, it will change the way patients are, are being taken care of because the team will be actually will include the patient to take care of themselves. I think that there's great opportunity here, not just for improving the patient and their journey, but even the whole healthcare system as a whole. From a financial perspective, there's a better understanding of outcomes with the data. And as we move towards value-based care, uh, the opportunity to gather more of that information, to start to leverage it, to identify, okay, here are the things that are leading towards positive outcomes. Uh, that's something that the health system as a whole uh, can improve upon uh, to reduce its costs and make it more efficient. Yep. And I'll just uh, mirror what, what's been said to say again, if you're getting a more complete record, chances are then you're going to end up with a better outcome where something is not missed. But then we'll, I'll take it up into the population health scenario that if now we have those folks who are looking at population health apps are getting a more complete real-time or near-time picture, they indeed may be able to catch some important pieces of new information happening on a population level that also can help improve things overall. That's an angle on this whole thing that I had never considered, Drew. So that's super, super interesting. 
I want to say a big thanks to all three of you, specifically Yannick, your insight around the patient now becoming part of the care team itself in the future by being controlling the data. Drew, your insight around shifting from volume to value-based healthcare and that insight at the end about how almost like country-level administrators will be able to do more with more of this standardized uh, FAFT data. And then Jeff, your insight early on in the discussion where you said that actually now the for the first time the patient is going to have more information than the provider. So I particularly enjoyed those parts. I think ultimately for me, the really exciting thing that I took from this session is the opportunity for innovation for both third-party developers building apps for patients, but also for clinicians. And all of this innovation is going to be funneled down onto the patient, which is ultimately going to make the world of healthcare better for the patient in the US. So with that, I want to thank you all guys. Thank all of you for joining and sharing your wisdom on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening. I think we did a good job there. I think we clearly showed that, yes, this regulation change is massive and it's going to have massive positive rippling effects for years to come. But also there are some other second order effects that need to be considered especially to do with data security for patient healthcare data and many others. And so I would like to thank, obviously, Jeff, Yannick and Drew for coming on and sharing your wisdom. I'd also like to thank you for listening. And of course, if you have any feedback about this or any other episode, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening.